Luke chapter 10, turn there with me if you would in your Bibles. New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, and then the book of Luke. Find the big number 10. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I didn't introduce myself. I am Mark Colton. I pastor the Cedar Lake campus, so just in case you're wondering, that's not Dan. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Mark. So my daughters and my wife were not able to join me, but um, they send their greetings. So Luke chapter 10, we'll look at that in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about a night I will not forget. It was in early 2000s. I don't remember exactly what year. But I remember rolling up to the church where I was pastoring, and I drove up, and I saw lying right in front of the front doors was a man. Tattered clothing, did not look like he was really with it, and he had a brown paper bag and a bottle in it, and I quickly parked the car. There was just a little bit of time before the youth group started and, you know, main service started. We had Sunday night services there. And so I approached this man and I came up to him and I got close and I said, sir, can I help you? And right about that time, I saw that it was not a stranger, but it was one of my friends from church who was acting, who was trying to put us to the test as a congregation and see what we would do. And uh, right about now, I just gave one of you guys a really good idea. Pastor Dan can thank me later for that one. But how would we do at Bethel with that kind of test? We failed that night. I'll just tell you, we failed. We didn't do a very good job. I had so many people come up and say, Pastor Mark, we've got to get this guy out of here. He's right in front of the, people have to step around him or over him. Can you tell him to leave the property? Um, they looked at him like the Ford Pinto that was always parked in our parking lot that no one ever moved. It was like, just get him out of the way. It's an eyesore. That was a shame. That's, that's how we handled it that night. At least some people did. How would we do? Now, the story I just shared is much like the parable that Christ taught in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. We're going to read that together. And, and Jesus shares this story of uh, a man in need. So look at that with me. Luke chapter 10, and I want to read for you verses 25 through 37. So follow along as I read God's word here. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go 
and do likewise. There's different ways we could look at this passage and different truths we could probably pull out. But I feel compelled this morning to talk to you about true holiness. True holiness. Now, before I go any further, I need to tell you my background is one. I grew up in a family and a church that emphasized holiness, really emphasized holiness. I mean, they would tell you how to be holy. They would tell you what to wear. They would tell you uh, what movies to watch. They would tell you, uh, they, they told my parents that I should throw away all my He-Man figures. That was discouraging, okay? They told us, well, you know, everything. This is how you're holy. They had holiness conferences. Holiness was heralded, but here's the thing. It was often treated like a badge. You know, like, we're holy. We're holier than you are. Sometimes it was even treated like a weapon, I think, against other people. And so it was an environment that talked about holiness, but like this lawyer in our text, they missed something significant. They missed love. Holiness is only true holiness if it includes love for our neighbor. Otherwise, it's no holiness at all. It's the form of holiness. It's the form of godliness. It's not actually holiness. In fact, love is the fulfillment of holiness. When Jesus is speaking to this lawyer, This is the summary of the law. Love is the fulfillment of holiness. Holiness by its very nature outputs love. So if we're living a holy life, really living a holy life, the output, the result is going to be love. This is verified by Jesus, verse 25 through 28. You can look down at the text. And and notice this dialogue. The lawyer is saying, what shall I do? Notice do. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And that's a very appropriate response because this man is a lawyer. Now, it's a lawyer maybe different than what you're thinking. It's a lawyer who studied this law, the word of God. He knew the law. And not just knew the law, he was supposed to interpret it and, and proclaim it to the people. He was supposed to understand what it really meant. And in verse 27, he gives this answer and he says, here's what the law is about. Here's a summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all those things. And love your neighbor as yourself. What a beautiful summary of the law. This man hits the nail right on the head. And and really, it's a mashup of two Old Testament passages. He's quoting from two different passages. The first one is Deuteronomy 6, known as the Shema, where the Jewish people would, would always recite, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And then Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, that says, love your neighbor as yourself. I'd encourage you later, go take that text, study it later tonight. It's the context for where we get love your neighbor as yourself. It it becomes known as the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, the royal law. And this is just a perfect summary of the law because if you take all the law in here, everything in the Old Testament All the laws, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, all of that, it can be summed up, it's been said, in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, and that is a a, a truncation. It is a shortening of the whole law. But now we have an even more succinct understanding of the law. What is the law? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. What does that mean? Well, all your emotions, all your consciousness, all your motivation, all your intelligence, everything that you are, your whole being. 
This is a brilliant response, and many Jews could not have said it better. They couldn't have even said it this well. They didn't understand the whole purpose of the law, which was love. It's really fitting for us to consider, given that we've been going through Romans. We've talked about the law, haven't we? You guys heard about the law a little bit? And the law, what it's about, it's not about making ourselves righteous. It's about being fulfilled in Christ. It's supposed to point to Christ, show us our sin, and point to Jesus Christ. And here we learn the law is fulfilled in love. The lawyer asks for qualification. And he's, he really desires justification. He says, who is my neighbor? And he's not just asking who is my neighbor. Um, he, he has more in his mind. This man is saying, how far does this neighbor thing go? Like how many people, is it every person? Which kind of people are my neighbor? And so Jesus answers this question with a parable. And he gives us this famous story of the Good Samaritan. A man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles. So that would be like you right now starting here and walking on foot down to Crown Point Square because you got to get Cafe Fresco or um, I don't, the donuts there or whatever. So walking 17 miles on foot. This is, except this is Northwest Indiana, so the geography is quite different from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem to Jer- Jericho is a steep decline. I haven't seen a steep hill yet in Northwest Indiana, coming from uh, Pennsylvania. Every time I think there's a hill, I'm like, oh, there's a hill. And my wife's like, that's a trash uh, uh, heap, you know, garbage, whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, well. This is flat, so we can't fully understand this, but you're going downhill. You're walking 17 miles down a steep incline, decline, actually. And it's, and it's actually wild country. It's the kind of place that bandits hid, and people were waiting to attack you. And I, in my mind, I think of the old stagecoach days, you know, the Wild West. Maybe a better modern uh, illustration would be you're in Chicago on the wrong street at midnight walking down a dark alley. This is a place that's very dangerous, a place where bad things happen. And so this man is walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he becomes attacked. He's robbed. He's beaten. He's left half dead. And then a priest happens to come by. We don't know how much, long, how much later, but the priest walks by. A priest is a descendant of Aaron. Somebody whose job was the temple, the sacrifices, and making sure that all happened well. And then next, a Levite walks down. A Levite would be somebody who helped the priest, somebody who was responsible to police the temple. Both of these guys would have been expected to do something. I mean, they help Israel spiritually. They could help them physically as well, but they don't. They pass by on the other side. And so as Jesus is telling this story, probably the average Jew would have sat there and been like, well, who's next? Okay, the priest didn't help. The Levite didn't help. Who's next? Like the average Jew, just the average Jewish layman? That probably would have been what they would have expected. But does Jesus go with a Jewish average layman? No, he brings in this story a Samaritan. A Samaritan hated by the Jews. We'll get to that in just a second. But it is this Samaritan who responds with genuine love for his neighbor. This Samaritan is the one who fulfills the law, who, who understands true holiness. He doesn't know the law as well as the Jewish people, but he fulfills the law through love. He is the one who exhibits what I would call loving holiness. Not just holiness, loving holiness. 
So we're going to consider from this text, what are we supposed to do with this passage? Because it is instructive. Jesus says to the lawyer, you go and you do likewise. So we want to know, what do we do? But along the way, I want us to look at Jesus Christ, who is the great Samaritan, who is the greatest good Samaritan. And we sang about his love today, didn't we? So we're going to talk about his love. We're going to talk about him being the good Samaritan. First this morning, holiness means nearness. Holiness means nearness. We must come close. Verse 31 and 32, these two men, the priest and the Levite, they passed by on the other side. But then you come to verse 33. You see that? Verse 33. The Samaritan came to where he was. He came near. He went out of his way to come close to this man. Do you think that there was a risk involved here? What do you think? Do you think it was risky? I do. It was risky because, um, I mean, there's multiple reasons why it was risky. A lot of commentators will say, well, touching this person if he were dead would make you ceremonially uh, unclean. So there's that whole risk. There's the risk that one person got beat up here. So chances are you could too. It could even be a trap. So there's a lot of risk. But this man does not seem to care about the risk or he pushes through the risk and he comes near. And what a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us when Jesus came near. Jesus, who was in heaven, always with the Father, always with the Spirit, in perfect union, didn't need to come down here. But to paraphrase Philippians 2, he said he was in the form of God He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or reached for. That means he was and is equal with God the Father. Jesus is perfect. He is God. He is divine. And yet he humbled himself, Philippians 2 says. He made himself nothing and he came in the form of a servant. And he was obedient even to death, death on a cross. This is the God who comes near. A God who knew we would never, ever reach up to him. We could never make it. We could never make it. I mean, that's what we're learning in Romans. We can't do it on our own. We cannot keep the law on our own. We're not able to get there. In fact, that's what the Tower of Babel shows us. Here's people trying to get to heaven without Christ, without God. And on our own, we can't do it. In fact, it's blasphemous to try to get to heaven without God. God knew we could never come down, so God came down. God knew we could never come up, so he came down. He came close. And so we must also. We must also come close to where people are, not avoiding, not a a healthy distance. We come close. We come near. We come close enough to touch. Bethel's doctrinal statement gives us this um, little succinct description of what the church is about. And I want to read it for you because there's a phrase in here I think it's helpful for us to look at. The church exists to glorify God by making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who worship and exalt him in all things. This happens as those in the church devote themselves to the teaching, study, and application of God's word. We're doing that here this morning. They seek the Lord in earnest prayer. We're doing that this morning. Experience the power of authentic, life-changing fellowship. That happens here in small groups and the times you guys get together. And notice this, and engage their community and the world with God's truth through acts of compassion and witness. In these things, the church pursues its ultimate purpose to exalt Christ by spreading his glory and proclaiming his gospel. So are you and I engaging our community with 
God's truth through acts of compassion and witness? Are we doing that? This morning, we're doing a lot of that paragraph, and we're doing that for God's glory together, and it's an encouraging time, but are we going, and are we coming near, and we sharing in compassion? Do we ever pass by on the other side? Do we ever see a need, and it's not my ministry, or it's just way too inconvenient, I don't have what it takes. Both the priest and the Levite in this scripture, they are seeking to live a holy life. And I would say more so than the average Jew. Maybe more so with more tenacity than you or I. They wanted to be pure. They wanted to be holy. They wanted to be righteous. But they missed something really important. They missed that holiness isn't holiness if you don't love your neighbor. If you don't take the time to stoop down and help the person in need, then you're not actually holy. Some people are never going to come through these doors. They're never going to come here. You know that. You, you work with some people. You probably live next to some people. You go, Man, I don't think they're ever going to come to Bethel. Maybe you've even invited them. I, I love it when somebody comes into our church and they tell me, oh, Pastor, I haven't been to church in like, 20 years, I had a guy the other day say this, and he goes, I hope I don't get struck by lightning. <laughs> I was like, dude, you're okay. It's, it's all right. But, he, you know, he hadn't been there forever and was not churched. And I love it when people come in and they're not your ordinary person. They're broken and they're, they're hurt and they just are looking for, for some answer. And, and they don't even know why they came. They came because the Spirit brought them. We love it when that happens. But that is not going to happen all the time. In fact, there are so many people out there who will never come in these doors. And by the way, this, that's not even the primary purpose of what we're doing here this morning. That's a beautiful part of it. When people come in here broken, we minister to them. We love them. They, they see what the body of Christ is all about. But primarily, this is about being in the Word, being instructed, discipled, worshiping together, fellowshipping together, and then going out there and going near to people who will never come here. People that will not come because, well, they might lack interest. They certainly lack the power, the spiritual ability and power to come here. Like the man lying by the side of the road, spiritually speaking, they do not have the power to come. They're not going to come. They're, they're, they're out there. We have to go to where they are. I want to give you two kinds of nearness this morning. Two different kinds of nearness. One is intrinsic nearness. Built-in nearness. God has ordained you to be near some people. So one example of this would be why God's placed you in the job that you're in. And that's not just to pay the bills, although that's a really major reason. But he has you in the job that he has you right now so that you can be around people, intrinsically near people who need Christ. It's why God has placed you in the neighborhood that you're in not just because of the low taxes, not just because of the school district, that's part of it, but, but God has supernaturally and sovereignly placed you there. It's why God, why God has put your kids on a particular sports team. And I know you wanted them to learn character and discipline and teamwork, all those good things, but they're on that team because there are people on that team and there are parents of people on that team and God has you to be near people. But then there's also an intentional nearness where we go, we go out of our way, we plan to try to be near people. That's why five teams from this church will participate in go trips this summer and they'll go around the world ministering. It's why this campus right here and our campus, Cedar Lake Campus, both do Kids Hope. 
because we want to go to where kids are. They're in the schools, and we want to go be around them, love them, mentor them, care for them. So that's going to where people are. That's why we support the Women's Center of Northwest Indiana, because there are women out there who need the gospel, women who need to be shown compassion and mercy. We need to pray as a church, God, where, are you, where else are you sending us? Where do you want us to go? Because we want to go where you want us to go. And it's a little, it makes you a little nervous, right? It reminds me of when I was an athlete uh, as, a, as a kid, and you'd go to the away games, right? The crowd is loud there. You don't see all the people you know. You're nervous. But you're on their turf. And when we go out there, we are on their turf. We're in the neighborhood. We're, it's uncomfortable, but man, it's how God uses us to come near and to show that kind of love and compassion. So holiness is nearness. And secondly, this morning, holiness also means mercy. It means mercy. Now, I don't need to convince you that the Good Samaritan displayed mercy. Because if you look at the last verse of our text, even the Jewish lawyer could recognize that. He said, yep, yeah, the guy who showed mercy. But I'd like to drive the point home by looking at the word that Jesus uses in verse 33, compassion. Similar word to mercy, but with a, very, uh, with a little bit of a different shade of meaning. And we know from this word that Jesus uses that this Samaritan's mercy is a deep mercy. It's a deep mercy because the word itself, it, it has the idea of compassion that wells up from deep within us, like the deepest part of our being, where our organs are, where our Actually, bowels are, is what it's referring to. That's this kind of mercy. It is deep. It comes from within us. It's a deep emotion, and it, you could really say love from your heart or love with all of your heart. That's kind of the idea here. There's a bottomless nature to this mercy. The guy says, whatever it costs, I will pay it. Whatever it costs. Blank check, basically. I'll come back and I'll square up later, but whatever it takes. There's a bottomless, deep Mercy that this guy has. He did all that he could. Now, how did he do this? Now, put, put aside this morning for a second the animosity between the Jew and the Samaritan. That we'll get to in a second. But just a stranger. Like, if you and I see a stranger, are we moved with mercy? Are we, are we moved from the deepest part of our being with compassion? I mean, I see a lot of knees, and I don't always feel this, this deep Mercy, it's not something that you can manufacture. In Scripture, it always comes when you see the need and you're moved. And I would say it's a divine mercy, too. It's a deep mercy, and it's a divine mercy. If you were to look at this word, compassion, here, all throughout the Gospels, outside of the parables of Jesus, this being one, it's never used of a human. It's only ever used of God. It's only ever used of Jesus Christ. So this is a divine kind of mercy. This mercy that we're being called to is something that only comes through Jesus Christ, where you can see a stranger or worse, an enemy, and be moved with pity, be moved with compassion. Jesus is God's display of mercy. So throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus showing this kind of mercy. I mean, uh, Mark 14, he looks at the large crowds and he sees them. And remember what he said? He said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need somebody. There's this deep need that they have. And it, it welled up within Jesus and he had compassion. Or before he fed the 5,000, same thing. And the widow who lost her son, and the boy who was demon-possessed in Mark 9, 
two blind men by Jericho. The text says that Jesus saw them. He heard their cries and he was moved with pity. He's moved with pity. This is a divine mercy. He showed mercy in his life, but Jesus showed mercy in his death. And I want you to, you picture this, you probably did during communion. Jesus, he's hanging on that cross with love in his eyes, not hate. Love in his eyes. He looks at the thief. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He utters the words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Here's a mercy that is deep, a mercy that is divine. Jesus had this deep compassion for you and for me because he knew our need. Jesus, on that cross, he's, he knows the need that we have as human beings. He knows that we cannot reach heaven. He knows that we cannot keep the law. He knows that we're not good people, and he knows that we're headed for an eternity apart from him in hell. And so he dies with that kind of compassion and mercy. Do we care enough to meet the needs of the people around us? Are we ever moved? Are we ever, we see somebody in need and we're like, I got to do something. I don't know what I can do, but I have to do something. We can't meet all the needs in the world. We can't even meet all the needs in, you know, Hobart and Portage or in Cedar Lake, in, in, in Lake County. There's, we can't, but I don't think God expects us to meet every single need in the whole world. As we go about our life, as we live the way that God wants us to live, as we work where God wants us to work, where we play, where we, where we play, then we encounter needs. And it is when we encounter those needs that we have to do something. Because God has sovereignly ordained that. It's not an accident. It's not luck. It, it says in the text that... Uh, by chance. And that's a way throughout scripture of reminding us it's not actually by chance. God is ordaining. God is moving. And as we journey, like, like these men, as we journey, we see these needs. I don't believe that the Good Samaritan was scouring the countryside looking for half-dead people. It's not what he was doing. He was just going about his business and there it was. There he was. 1 John 3.17 says, but if anyone has the world's goods sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't. The prophets condemned Israel constantly for turning a blind eye to the needs of the people around them, turning a blind eye to the oppressed, to the afflicted. Have you ever been in the city and you've come across a homeless individual and you had your kids with you? Don't kids have such a tenderness about them, such a, a, a compassion? I know my kids always do, and kids are so sensitive. You know, us adults, we know better, right? We, we know that they're probably lazy, or it's a scam, or they're probably high or drunk. Or Do we really know that for sure? Do you really know for sure that that's the scenario? And even if it is, is there not an element of you that should have compassion I'd encourage you, next time you go into the city, you know you're gonna see homeless people. Take an extra sandwich with you. Take something with you where it could be a teachable moment for your family. You could say, well, we can't give everything, but we can share some food with this person. The food that we're eating, we can share that with them. My brother lives outside of Boston. He takes the public transportation every day into the city to work in downtown Boston. He told me the first couple of days he walked his route, he walked by the same homeless people every day. For about a week, it was kind of like, 
starting to wear on him. At first it was like, okay, wow, that's interesting. And then he said, I just couldn't keep walking past the same people every day and do nothing. So I couldn't do it. He didn't have a lot of funds, so he said, uh, bananas are cheap. So he bought a ton of bananas, or he just regularly buys them. And then he gives a banana out every single day to the same people. He became known as the banana man, which is fun. But it was something. It was nutritious. It was a conversation starter. He had, he had good gospel conversations with people. I know a sandwich, a banana, it's not going to cure poverty. These are systemic issues that need to be addressed holistically. But we can love our neighbor as ourselves. We can do something for them. Do we care enough to share the gospel? Yes, meet people's physical needs, but there are people all around us who are half dead spiritually. In fact, the Bible says they're completely dead spiritually. And they're all around us. And they might look good on the outside. They don't look like the homeless person, but they're dead. Do you have any compassion? Do I have any compassion when I look at that person and realize they don't know Christ? They're lying, they're bleeding, spiritually speaking. They need the gospel. Do we care enough to share the gospel? Holiness means we display nearness and it means we show mercy. And then thirdly, holiness is self-denial. Holiness is self-denial. The Samaritan displays self-denial. We'll look at that in a moment. But I, I first want to mention that the priest and the Levite, they refuse to deny themselves. They're only thinking about themselves. Where am I going? What do I want to do? I don't want to be bothered. Even the lawyer who's speaking with Christ here, he's, he's motivated by selfishness. How do I know that? Well, verse 29, it says, he was desiring to justify himself. And that, that word justify means to make yourself righteous, to appear righteous, to be righteous, to be okay. And so in an effort to justify himself, he asks about the neighbor. What he's saying is, who do I have to be loving towards in order for me to be righteous? Instead of, who can I be righteous towards? He's not asking, like, who's my neighbor? Who can I help? He's saying, well, okay, well, who really is my neighbor? How many people do I need to help? Do I need to help everyone? For the lawyer, it's still about him. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus takes duty and he turns it into delight. He takes what we have to do and he, he turns it into what we get to do. He takes who's my neighbor and turns it into who can I be a neighbor to? That's what he does. In this text, Jesus is showing him it's not about what you have to do, it's about what you get to do. You get to love others, whatever their background, wherever they come from. Jesus is showing us that being a neighbor means loving somebody as much as I love myself. Now, have you ever thought about what that means? Like, why does Jesus say, love your neighbor as you love yourself? Why would he use that phraseology? I believe it's because we, it's understood that we love ourselves. It's a given. It's something that can be verified if you look at any human being. Now, whether you think of yourself as greater than you really are, uh, and you, know, you struggle with pride and arrogance, obviously that's loving yourself. Or if you think of yourself as less than you are, you're self-deprecating, you're always down on yourself, saying untrue things about yourself, you're still obsessing about yourself. You still care about yourself. Right? So we, every human being, we, we, we do love ourselves. We care about ourselves. In 2013, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was... Selfie. 
It's not real shocking, is it? Right? We have selfie sticks and we have selfie cameras on our phones and all this, okay? And I came across an article a little while ago. It was entitled, Love Thy Neighbor as Thy Selfie. And in that article, there was a, a quotation from uh, Shel Silverstein, who is an American author. He, he said this, If my face could only twist, then I could give my cheek a kiss and whisper in my lovely ear, You're so beautiful, my dear. And look into my eyes and see just how much I'm in love with me. Now, when we talk about this selfie culture, often millennials get a bad rap, right? I know there's a lot of millennials in here today, I think, okay? Um, I just missed that generation. But I want to tell you, it doesn't matter what generation you're from, we all love ourselves. We all care about ourselves. We all struggle with selfishness. It's not just the young people of today. It's all of us. So in the midst of a selfish culture, love your neighbor as yourself is a message we absolutely need. We need to hear this. And it's going to require self-denial because we already care about ourselves. So we deny ourselves to love others. And it requires personal cost to see somebody in suffering and to share in that suffering. To say, I'll, I'll take some of that upon myself. I will give of myself. It looks like a Samaritan who gives of his resources, his wine and his oil and his bandages and his money and his time to go with this man to the inn and take time outside of his schedule. It looks like 17-year-old Chris Stone who stood in front of the art room door at Santa Fe High School, barricading it to protect a class full of students. He took a bullet for his classmates and he sacrificed his own life just this past week. And it looks like Christ. It looks like Christ who paid the price for my sin and he suffered on that cross. He took the bullet of God's wrath so that I didn't have to, even though I deserve it. And he took that bullet for me and he sacrificed himself because of my sin. In Luke 10, Jesus is speaking to a lawyer and this lawyer is trying to justify himself, it says. And, he, and he's trying to care about himself. And yet Jesus in just a, a, a little bit of time, is going to go to that cross and he is going to sacrifice himself to justify others. To give up his life so that you and I could be justified. Not thinking about him, he's thinking about others. In an effort to justify ourselves, we are working to preserve ourselves. Jesus, he does the opposite. This contrast is beautiful. Jesus, on a mission to justify others, he sacrifices himself. That's what he does. The only way, have you learned this from Romans? The only way that we can be justified, the only way that we can be righteous before God, the only way that one day we're going to be okay, that we're going to stand before this judge and we're going to be okay, the only way is because of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. The fact that he laid down his life, that the perfect Lamb of God would stand in my place, would die the death that I deserve. See, that's the only way that we can be justified. Any attempts to justify ourselves are not going to work. If we try to justify ourselves by keeping the law and the, the scriptural commandments, we're doomed. That's what we've learned from Romans. We are in trouble. If we're trying to justify ourselves, we are doomed. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, regardless of your background. If you try to justify yourself, you're in trouble. And if I do that, I'm in trouble. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, imagine if you will 
that someone did actually succeed in loving God with all his heart, strength, soul, and mind. Even then, he would still only be halfway home because he would still have to fulfill the second part of the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that at times is even more difficult than to love God, for God is altogether lovely. There is no just reason for us not to love God, but there are plenty of reasons why we would find it difficult to love all of our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And I imagine that just about everyone could say amen to that. God is lovely. No reason why we shouldn't love God with all of our being, but love your neighbor? Well, that's hard. So we can understand that we cannot keep the law. We can't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And we can't love our neighbor as ourself. And so we realize that we are undeserving of this righteousness. We are undeserving to be declared righteous, to be justified. We sang about that. We did. You know, it's, it's, we don't deserve it, but God gives his love away anyway. And because of this undeserved love, we must be near, we must have mercy, we must deny ourselves, and then lastly, we must have justice. We must have justice. Now, this word isn't in the text. You won't see the word justice in Luke chapter 10. But the actions of justice are most certainly on display because it's not an accident that God chooses a Samaritan. That is not an accident that God places into the story a Samaritan. No, this is an issue of justice. This is an issue of fairness, of what's right between our fellow man. And if you were to look at Leviticus 19, I'd encourage you later to do that. This context of loving your neighbor as you love yourself, it is talking about Loving the rich, loving the poor, showing mercy to no matter what somebody's background is. And we can now add, regardless of race, based on this text. Regardless of background, regardless of whether they're rich or they're poor or black or white or whatever background they come from, we treat people with justice. If you know anything about history, there was quite a bit of animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. It all started back when the United Kingdom was divided into two separate kingdoms, the north and the south. The south is Judah, the north is Israel. That Israel becomes Samaria later. The Assyrians come in, the Assyrians intermarry with the Israelites, and so you had what the Jews referred to as a half-breed. And so there is this deep division. In fact, when the Jews return from exile, they they start to rebuild the temple, and the Samaritans offer to help. They want to help, and the Jews say, no, no, thanks, we don't wants your help. And so the Samaritans try to stop the rebuilding of the temple. And then when that doesn't work, they start their own temple. And so you have a, a big division between the Samaritans and the Jews. In fact, the Jews did not even consider the Samaritans their neighbor. In one body of Jewish law, it says that the neighbor of a Jew is a Jew. And that's pretty straightforward. So when they would have read Leviticus 19, they would have said, okay, I need to love my neighbor Rich Jew, poor Jew, whatever Jew. I I need to love all people that are Jewish. That's kind of how they would have applied it. It is how they applied it, we see from, from Scripture. In verse 37, you notice this lawyer, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He's like, uh, the one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan. I won't even say his name because that's how I feel about Samaritans. But I love this. Jesus cuts through tradition and he restores the intended meaning of Leviticus 19. Because Leviticus 19 is not just about to your Jewish neighbor. Look at the text later. 
It's about people who come from the outside too. It always meant those people around you, whatever their background, whatever their race, whatever they're going through, love them as you love yourself. And the word for neighbor that is used in this text, it's not the word for those living right around your house. There's a word that literally means people around your house, the neighborhood. It's a word that is used for the fellow man, the common man, your person you come into contact with. A couple things about justice before we wrap up. Justice is the opposite of prejudice. It's the opposite of prejudice. It is treating people fairly regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they come from. It's this fairness. And it's the opposite of prejudice. Showing justice means remedying unjust situations. Now, this is convicting to me because this means we do something. Like when we see injustice, we do something. We don't just see it and go, that's a problem, and we walk by on the other side. Now, you might not be able to meet the need completely, but are we doing something? Are we, are we acting? Because the man who acts is the one who Jesus commends here. And our God is a God of justice. Going back to Leviticus 19, it is his heartbeat. God is a God of justice for all peoples. A lot of people they get a misunderstanding of God, like he was just a Jew lover and he didn't love anyone else. No, he, he, he picked the Jews out of all peoples to be his special people. But he tells them, you're to be a light. You're to, you're to minister to the Gentiles. You're to bless the world. God loves all people and he's a God of justice. Leviticus 19 and many other passages. If I could give you a biblical definition of justice, and this is coming from looking at the various texts on justice throughout the scriptures, and uh, I would give you this. This is the definition. You could scroll, uh, scroll this down if you want. Treating every human with dignity, respect, and integrity. Treating every human with dignity, respect, and integrity. And again, that's pulling the different texts of Scripture together. Sometimes it talks about being honest in your dealings, just, fair, having integrity. Sometimes it, it means showing dignity to the person or respect. Treating every human with dignity, respect, and integrity, regardless of ethnicity, social class, beliefs, sexual orientation, gender identity, fill in the blank. That doesn't mean we always agree with everyone, and it doesn't mean we compromise what we believe in Scripture, but it means that we love people like we love ourselves. It means that we act as a neighbor toward others. Just this past week, there were stories of racial injustice, and I feel like constantly in the news, right? We're very aware of it. We had that man in the restaurant who, the restaurant is speaking Spanish to a Spanish customer, a Spanish-speaking customer, and he gets irate and he gets upset. Somebody films him and puts it on social media. Or you had the Starbucks employees who are writing racial slurs on cups. And we look at all of the, the injustice in our world today, we have to remember that Jesus is God's display of justice. We may see a lot of injustice around us, but Jesus, he is the display of justice. Justice in his life. Think about the way he treated people. He was just in his dealings. He treated the oppressed with love. He had a heart for children, the handicapped, the leprous, the prostitute, the diseased. All the people that society said, yeah, I'm okay if they're just not right around me. Jesus treated them fairly. He treated them with dignity. He treated them with care. And then, of course, Jesus showed justice in his death. In his life, 
but in his death did he show justice. Oh my, did he show justice. The fact that he would care for us who are the oppressed, care for us who are spiritually dead, and the fact that he would make justice, that he would actually deal with the sin problem and satisfy God's wrath, we have the perfect picture of justice. Jesus often confronted the Jewish leaders on their injustice. He often said, you're not treating people the way you're supposed to. You lack mercy and you lack justice. Yeah, you tithe everything that you have, your mint and your your herbs and all this stuff, but you lack the most important thing, which is mercy, which is justice. These people had a misconception of the law. They thought it was just know this really well, keep it really well, look real spiritual to other people, and they, they missed it. They missed a really important component of holiness, and that is love, love for their fellow man, love for the person who they don't want to touch. That's true holiness. The man who Jesus talks with here in Luke 10, he's no different. You know, he had studied God's law continually. He knew this book, and he applied it, but somehow he missed it. May God give us a tender heart, a heart that sees the needs around us, and deep within us, there's this compassion that wells up. There's this divine mercy that God gives us that only he can give us, where we love people in their need. Bethel family, we need to be known as a holy people. Yes, we need to be known as people of holiness. We don't want to compromise. We do not want to be worldly. We do not want to be just like the rest of the world, giving into our sinful flesh, doing whatever we want, and just saying, oh, it's grace. No, we are called to be a holy people but we must never use that holiness as a badge. We may never use it as a weapon against other people. True holiness includes love. How are we gonna treat the person who walks in these doors who's very, very different from us? Are we gonna love them? Are we gonna show loving holiness towards them? So I don't know where you're coming from. Maybe you have a background kind of like me. You, you grew up and you were taught what it means to be holy and you strive to be holy and you wanna be the person God wants you to be. But if you're honest, sometimes you struggle and you overlook the love piece. You're so concerned with staying away from those, those bad influences that at times you know that you miss being loving towards your neighbor. And your challenge, the challenge for you today is think of the Good Samaritan. Think of the love of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of holiness we're called to. And if our holiness doesn't look anything like that, then it's not even holiness. But there might be somebody in here today, too, who um, you've been on the receiving end of that. You've been around Christians who said they were holy, talked about holiness. They treated you like junk. And maybe it gave you a really bad taste in your mouth for Christianity. You said, what? If that's what being a Christian is, I don't need it. I don't want it. I'll just continue to do my own thing. And and you've been hurt by, quote, unquote, holiness. I want to encourage you this morning. That's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't act that way. Jesus, when he, he, he is holy, I mean, he is perfectly holy. He is God, 100% God, never had a wrong thought, never had a wrong action, never had a wrong motive, but he was always loving too. So in your disillusionment, look to Jesus and say, okay, that's, that's what holiness looks like. We would do well sometimes to compare our holiness to Jesus' holiness and see where we are. I close with Micah 6.8, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God.